and welcome to the Unsolicited Film Reviews Podcast. I'm Zach Miller. And I'm still Martin Cook. And this is part two of our podcast about the 1940s. One episode just couldn't keep us down, so we're making this into a two-parter for your listening enjoyment. We've already done The Grapes of Wrath, The Great Dictator, Fantasia, The Philadelphia Story, Citizen Kane, Casablanca, and Double Indemnity, but you're just in time to catch us talk about our final three films, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, The Third Man, and The Bicycle Thief, as well as some new segments we're adding for your pleasure. So, kick us off, Martin. All right, so, uh, yeah, let's get right into it then with The Treasure of the Sierra Madre from 1948. So this was a Warner Brothers movie that premiered on January 14th, 1948. It was directed and written by John Huston. It's based on a novel of the same name by B. Traven, uh, which Huston had read in the late 30s and wanted to make into a movie almost immediately. But then, as a lot of things did, uh, things got put off during, during World War II, and so he didn't get around to it until the late 40s. Uh, it's one of the very first U.S. productions to be filmed on location outside of the U.S. A lot of it was filmed in Durango State in, in Mexico. The film stars Humphrey Bogart in a completely different role from his one in Casablanca, uh, Tim Holt, and Walter Houston, who, yes, was the father of director John Houston. So this is probably the best time to talk about the Houston family, one of the most talented families in movie history. Mm-hmm. Walter, the family patriarch, was a Canadian. Woo-woo! Shout out to my, <laughs> Can- shout out to my Canadians. <laughs> who was born in 1883 and began as a stage actor when he wasn't paying the bills with other jobs, like managing electrical power stations and things like that. <laughs> uh, after years in vaudeville and on Broadway, he eventually made his way to Hollywood at the advent of talkies, where he had a very successful career. His son, John, this film's writer-director, was known as one of the great mavericks of Hollywood. Uh, he began in the industry as a writer before adding directing and later acting to his repertoire. During the madness of the Joseph McCarthy-led House Committee on Un-American Activities, period, which swept up a number of talented writers, actors, and directors, Houston renounced his American citizenship in disgust and moved to Ireland, where he became an Irish citizen for a a number of years, a couple of decades. Well, he was an Irish citizen to the rest of his career. Eventually, he moved back to the U.S., though. He has a unique claim as a director uh, that he directed both his father in this movie and his daughter, Angelica, to Oscar wins. Mm. Uh, He's the most... uh, probably the most prominent member of the Houston family, but these days the most prominent members would be John Houston's kids, who are Angelica Houston, Oscar winner, and known for a number of things, and Danny Houston, probably most widely known these days recently for his role in Wonder Woman, where he played General Ludendorff. So just a, oh, okay. Okay. just an incredible acting and, and Hollywood family all around. So, back to this movie. Treasure of the Sierra Madre won three Oscars for Best Director and Best Writing for John Huston and the aforementioned Best Supporting Actor for Walter Huston. It was also nominated for Best Picture. It earned ranks of number 30 and 38 on AFI's Top 100 Films lists, number 67 on its Thrills list, and has the number 36 quote on the Top 100 Movie Quotes list with the following. Badges. We ain't got no vouchers. We don't need no vouchers. 
I don't have to show you any stinking bashes. So obviously that's that's a line that's been uh, repeated and parodied many times, and so you can see why it's such a memorable line. So the story. Um, in a town in Mexico in the 20s, two unemployed Americans try to scrounge for any kind of work they can get. While staying in a flop house, they run into an old prospector whose tales of gold get them dreaming, and so the three head off into the mountains. They eventually do find gold and set about the long process of trying to extract it. But over time, they become increasingly suspicious of each other, as well as trying to avoid area bandits. Tensions just keep building until they're ready to haul the gold off the mountain. But another American and then a team of bandits arrive who also want what they have. In the end, greed gets the better of at least one member of their crew, and they turn on each other. Zach, your impressions. I thought it was, uh, I thought it was really good. It was really cool to see Bogey kind of take a dark turn for once because he was always lauded as, you know, this, uh, this hero, this irreproachable hero. And to see him, spoiler alert, turn out to be the bad guy in the end was kind of refreshing. And I would imagine for audiences in 1948, that would be a major twist that nobody would see coming. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and Bogey's character, I mean, it's definitely relatable in a way as somebody that we all know. I mean, we all There's lots of people who are short of money from time to time, and we all know these people who even though they're desperately in need of cash, as soon as they get a little bit, instead of using it to food, for food or to pay rent or whatever, they, they do what Bogey did at the very beginning of this movie, and they, they rush out and buy things that they don't really need, and that's exactly his character at the beginning. The, when we first see him, even, he's, he's kind of unlike, well, he, he rushes out and gets himself a fresh shave and stuff as when he's been handed money a couple of times by people on the street. That's just like uh, animalistic human nature. We all, yeah, like you said, we all know people like that. They just want to buy a piece of the better life that they think they're missing out on instead of, you know, putting it away in savings and kind of building yourself up from the ground up. But yeah, every 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 dollar, every peso he makes, he just fricassees it away. <laughs> yeah. I, I will say, though, that the bogey character for me is why at times this wasn't necessarily an easy movie to watch because I, like him as the protagonist, um, definitely not the hero, but, mm. but the protagonist, he's, he's just pretty much entirely horrible. I mm. mean, protagonists don't always have to be morally upright characters to be interesting. Um, obviously, the rise of the antihero in the last 20 years has shown us that. But there's usually something about them, right? I mean, they're intelligent, or they're funny, or they have clever, witty dialogue, or something. But Bogey's character, I mean, he's just miserable throughout the entire film. And, and, and he's not particularly bright or witty, and I, I don't know, I just... I just found him hard to follow. Bogey is totally fucking unredeemable. <laughs> yeah, he is basically the entire movie, and and he's the protagonist. I mean, credit to to Bogey as an actor. Yeah, it's, as you said, it's an entirely different character from anything he had done before, and he does it really well. But it doesn't make it necessarily watchable <laughs> i mean it's watchable but it doesn't make it enjoyable to watch that yeah and this uh, is so at much. the this is at the risk of his own reputation almost because this is still when movie stars were linked with their characters there wasn't any uh, like audiences wanted to see heroes on the screen and for him to take this kind of risk and become a really despicable character 
really shows that he was willing to evolve as an actor here. Yeah, yeah, and he was clearly at the top of his game that he felt that he could do whatever he wanted almost at, at this point. Um, I lo- one thing I really did enjoy about this movie is, is there's this scene near the beginning when they're talking to Walter Houston's character and they first learn about the gold, and he basically lays out the entire plot of the movie in just a couple of minutes. Oh, when right, he, right, When right. he talks about what's going to happen with gold, and it, that's pretty much the entire movie laid out right there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I enjoy that in in just a very obvious sense of foreshadowing, but also in almost speaking to the inevitability of, of the greed of human nature as well, that this, this is kind of going to happen no matter no matter what you do. Right. Uh, so, I, so I did really enjoy that part of it. And, he, and Bogey's character really meets an ignominious end, too. He, he doesn't go out like in a hail of gunfire or anything like that. He's just straight up beheaded by this gang that's been pursuing him through the to the, the, the last two acts of the movie. And, yeah, he's just left to die in the dirt. And it, it, another um, reference to the Hayes Code... Houston and Bogart both wanted them to show his decapitated head rolling around in that 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 puddle, and uh, they had to cut that for obvious reasons. But yeah, basically it, all of the deaths uh, in this movie uh, occur off screen. Mm-hmm. Even when the um, the federales are are executing banditos. The, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the camera pans to another direction. Then you hear the gunshots of, as they've lined them up in the firing line. Yeah. Fuego! So I, ima- <laughs> I imagine that's all Hayes Code stuff. And I, I, one thing that I, I sort of noticed, I'd seen this movie once before, but I, I guess I didn't really clue into this. But the Walter Houston character, he is, obviously this must have set the stage. He, he basically is the epitome of sort of the old prospector type, yeah. like especially that that little dance that he does oh, God, when, he, yeah. when he finds gold at the beginning. That's <laughs> been that's been copied so many times, even in cartoons and everything like that. Yeah, that Toy little, Story too. Yeah, that little dance right there is absolutely sort of iconic, and I, I hadn't caught that necessarily the the first time I watched that. That that's where all this comes from. And a testament to Walter Houston, he didn't know any Spanish whatsoever. So he had to be taught phonetically how to say each line that he said in Spanish. And he just nailed it, not knowing what the hell it meant. Yeah, his his Spanish was was pretty good as well, especially for somebody who couldn't speak it at all. And, And Humphrey Bogart only knew two words in Spanish. This is probably an exaggeration, but this is the story he told the press. He knew dos equis. (laughs) because <laughs> all he needed to do was know how to order a beer and he was good to go that's fantastic <laughs> that's uh, that's classic bogey for you yeah <laughs> so with that we'll move on to the third man in 1949 it's a british film noir directed by carol reed who is a guy <laughs> written by <laughs> written by graham green and starring joseph cotton from he was also one of the main players in Citizen Kane. Alita Valley, Orson Welles, also from Citizen Kane, obviously, and Trevor Howard. It takes place in post-war Vienna, 
It centers around Holly Martins, played by Cotton, a down-on-his-luck American Pulp Fiction Western writer who is given a job by his old friend Harry Lime, played by Orson Welles. When Holly gets to Vienna, though, it turns out that Lime has just been killed in a hit-and-run, or at least that's what he's led to believe. He starts to investigate because the pieces of Lime's death just don't really fit together. As it turns out, Lime faked his own death to avoid prosecution at the hands of Major Calloway, played by Trevor Howard. Lime's been running a racket that involves selling diluted penicillin to local hospitals, which has resulted in numerous excruciating deaths, especially pertaining to children suffering from meningitis. It's a cat-and-mouse chase after that that ultimately results in Lime getting his comeuppance when Holly shoots him dead. It's a bleak ending, and no one is happy at the end. It's a perfect noir ending. What'd you think? Uh, I have to say, for me, it was uh, it was a bit of a tale of two movies. Um, I mean, I have to admit that I found the the beginning half a little slow and kind mm. of meandering, and sometimes verging on boring a little bit. But then once the the twist happens, and I wasn't sure if, if you were gonna—I mean, spoiler alert for a movie in 1949. But for anybody who hasn't seen it, that twist is just such an important part of the movie. Once that twist happens, uh, from there, I thought it, I thought it was great, and I thought it really moved along well, and and it all came together. So um, it, was, it was definitely slow going for me to begin with. But then as soon as the hook, uh, yeah, as soon as the the twist happened, I, I was absolutely hooked. Yeah, it's kind of weird because I, I wonder how people in 1949 took the, that twist because Orson Welles was billed as one of the stars and we all know that he was going to play Harry Lime. So I guess the only way they could have gotten around that twist is if they build it as some kind of flashback or something that that's kind of what I was assuming was going to happen but yeah it took a long I, I looked at it it was an hour and five minutes before right. we first see Orson Welles and yeah that's all I'd, I'd never seen Third Man before and so I all I'd known was okay this is an Orson Welles movie and and all the posters and the sort of iconic images you see about this movie all have Orson Welles front and center so I kept wondering when the hell is Orson Welles going to show up in this right. film yeah and it's an hour and five minutes into the movie and you talk about you talk about character introduction like we did with rick and casablanca this is a little overkill yeah exactly i don't think you can wait now until over halfway through the movie when you introduce like the most famous actor that you're about to introduce so yeah it it was kind of um oddly oddly paced i will agree with that but um the the from a cinematography aspect i thought it was flawless um, it had all the tropes that we look for in noir, uh, except it made really extreme use of Dutch angles. And a Dutch angle is when you tilt the camera either way, left or right, in order to make it seem uncomfortable for the viewer. And, I mean, this this movie almost rotated the camera to all like <laughs> like a 70 degree angle at points because we're supposed to be in um in holly martin's shoes who is the joseph cotton character and as he gets more and more confused the camera tilts more and more which is a really great device to use cinematography wise yeah there's there's a funny little story about uh, william wyler who was a, a massive director of, of the time and friends with 
Carol Carol Reed is it the yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. director, and so he apparently after seeing this movie sent Carol Reed a level, <laughs> and then with a note saying next time you film a movie put this damn thing on the top of your camera and just leave it there. <laughs> I did not know that. That's hilarious. But yeah, Dutch angles weren't really used, and this was an Amer- This was not an American film, but it was an English speaking film, and uh, the Dutch angle kind of came from a combination of German expressionism and filmmaking in the Netherlands, why, which is why it's called a Dutch angle. It's kind of the the independent filmmakers, but this is the first time it's really prominently used in an English speaking film. But yeah, you're um, you're absolutely right about the cinematography. I mean, between in this decade, between Citizen Kane and Double Indemnity, and The Third Man, I said Double Indemnity right this time. Yay! Um, they uh, just just the use of, of light and shadow. Uh, they they really mastered the art in this decade. It was right. just it was just incredible. And maybe it was after this decade that things started to move away from black and white a little bit because maybe they'd taken it as far as they could. They mm. were those three movies alone. They just, they really mastered it. It's, right. it's incredible. There's that scene near the end when they're all on a stakeout and a man's shadow is projected in a huge way onto this building. Yeah. And then it comes around the corner and it's actually a guy carrying balloons, but just stuff like that was just really, uh, just really well done. Yeah. Despite the, uh, the story flaws, they managed to ratchet up the, the suspense with cinematography alone, which is a, a, a real rarity. And like you said, yeah, the guy coming in with the balloons, everybody think that's, think that's going to be Harry Lime, but it's just this old guy. You're like, Oh, everybody lets <laughs> yeah. out a deep breath. Uh, okay. what do you think of that score? I was actually going to point that out. Um, yeah, because apparently this is well known as one of the greatest scores of all time. And I will say, later on in the movie, the the zither is the the name of the instrument. It's the only uh, instrument used in the score. Yeah, and apparently it was um, discovered by the by the director. He was hanging out in a cafe one time, and mm. this random dude was sitting there playing the zither, and so he went up to him and. And said, "Hey, uh, you know, would you like to?" And they worked together on on scoring this movie. Um, <laughs> there were there were times when I thought it was very effective. I will say, at the very beginning, it really stood out and didn't seem to fit to me at all because he's just arriving um, in this new place and he finds out that his buddy is dead, and then he goes to the funeral, and this is the the music that's playing. Yeah, yeah, I found it like kind of really off-putting at some points. Uh, I'm all for you know experimental scores and things like that, but to use just this one really random instrument to score the entire movie without any other instrument. I mean, there weren't even any percussion elements. It was just the zither. It, 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 it worked at points, but at other points, it just kind of takes you out of it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And for me, it was definitely that that beginning part more than anything else. It, and maybe I got used to it or something later on in the film, or maybe they used it better as they as they scored later parts of the movie. But um, 
Yeah, I agree. It, despite being held up as one of these one of the great scores, I, I I found it didn't always work. One one thing I will say, just a little side about this movie that I loved, Bernard Lee. Like years and years before he was M in the James Bond movies, showing oh, up. Right. That's the very first time I'd ever seen him in anything else other than M. And he's obviously much younger in this movie, but uh, that was a nice surprise. <laughs> and it's no surprise that Orson Welles totally stole the show. I think he was probably in a total of five or six scenes. He only spoke in three or four of those, but he was amazing, especially that the most iconic scene from this film is the, the Ferris wheel set piece. And after they get off the Ferris wheel, you, I mean, well, while they're on the Ferris wheel, you almost think this is going to make like a crazy turn where Orson Welles kills Joseph Cotton and takes over the rest of the movie. But that's another thing where they do a great job of suspense of suspense, even though the story is lacking in certain elements and then that that cuckoo clock speech that he gives at the end was a fantastic monologue, and I'll play the last bit of that here. <laughs> Don't be so gloomy. After all, it's not that awful. Well, what the fella said, in Italy for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed, but they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. So long, Holly. Yeah, it's just a really interesting take on humanity. And I, I, I thought it was really interesting the way he uh, compared Italy to Sweden. Switzerland. Yeah, and, sorry. Yeah, and, you know, despite the fact that it was maybe factually incorrect because yeah. cuckoo clocks are actually from Switzerland, from the Black Forest area of Germany. But anyway, um, a, a fact which uh, Orson Welles learned later on. And he, sort of, <laughs> he, he said people kept sending him messages from Switzerland saying, <laughs> My bad. Uh, yeah. so he coughed to it. But um, I, that scene was, was a great turning point in the movie for a number of reasons. Uh, one of them is that before that point, I was still almost willing to give Orson Welles the benefit of the doubt. You still think, mm. oh, maybe he's got a good ex- explanation for this, maybe. But it's in that moment that you realize, oh, no, he's he's absolutely the supervillain of this movie. Oh, right, yeah. He's like a Lex Luthor type. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's all about for the quote-unquote greater good, which in the end only benefits him. Yeah. So let's move on to our final movie then of the 1940s, and that is The Bicycle Thief, or Bicycle Thieves. I should note, of course, that there is some confusion about the title. It's commonly known in North America as The Bicycle Thief uh, because of how it was built at the time. However, the title in Italian is actually plural, and so the real title should be Bicycle Thieves. And uh, I don't know about you, Zach, I actually had a hard time finding it to download and rent because I was looking for The Bicycle Thief, but it's part of the Criterion Collection under the proper title of Bicycle Thieves. Mm. And so when I was looking for it on, on iTunes, whatever, I, I couldn't find it as Bicycle Thief. And I'm like, oh, shit, are we going to have to change our movie for this week? But <laughs> then, then luckily I found it. Um, it's an Italian movie, premiered in Rome on November 21st, 1948. But it wasn't released in the U.S. until the following year in 1949. Uh, it's the first true foreign language film we're reviewing on this podcast series because... Although there were foreign language films in our in our look at the movies from the twenties, 
they were basically all silent movies. So title cards were all changed for North American audiences and the language didn't really matter. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's directed by Vittorio De Sica with a screenplay by Cesare Vattatini, uh, uh, Zavattini. Um, it was very loosely adopt, adapted from a novel by Luigi Bartolini. And he kept the title and a few of the plot points, but really not much else. It was um, a major film in the Italian neorealist movement, which meant, among other things, that De Sica shot entirely on location, so no sets were used. Mm. And he cast non-actors in all the roles. Uh, he did, however, actually overdub the lines of the lead actor, uh, Lamberto Maggiorini. Maggiorani. Maggiorani. <laughs> Maggiorani. I'm trying to, trying to get these Italian accents down right. these names. Um, so he overdubbed uh, the guy's lines with a professional actor. In fact, uh, Maggiorani was a factory worker. And when he made the, well, he made the equivalent of about a thousand bucks for the film, um, everybody assumed, because the film was such a massive success, that he had you know, made tons of money. So his life somewhat reflected the idea of the film because as soon as he came back to work after the film, he was laid off because they assumed he didn't need the money oh, uh, when he actually <laughs> did. And so, yeah, he could have had a hard life after that. He tried to get by in subsequent years by getting other smaller film roles, but he never really became a star again, even though he was bit parts in a few different things, uh, despite Bicycle Thieves being one of the most popular Italian movies of all time. Uh, the film won an Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film, which at the time was just an honorary award. But it was one of the films whose popularity helped to make that a permanent category at the Oscars by 1956. Mm. So the story. It's set in post-World War II Italy, so really appropriate for, for this time period. The film, it shows the effects of the war in a shattered economy with millions looking for work. One of those is a man who finally gets a job, but it requires him to have a bicycle. So after pawning the family's bed sheets to get enough money to get it back his previously pawned bike, he sets off on his first day of job putting up posters and billboards around Rome to the delight of his wife and young son. Unfortunately, on his first day, his bicycle is stolen. And the rest of the film basically follows him and his son as they desperately search around the city for the bicycle or the thief. What were your impressions, Zach? First and foremost, the kid who played Bruno Enzo Stadiola was absolutely amazing, especially for the time. Uh, as far as this podcast goes, I hadn't seen anything like that since the kid with, uh, was it Jackie Gleason? Uh, Jackie Coogan. Coogan, Coogan. No, yeah, Gleason. No, my bad. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, um, I thought... For as young as he was, he really carried the movie emotionally. And and a completely untrained actor, too. Apparently, they had already started some filming, and he was just some random uh, kid on the street in Rome who was watching the production. And oh. the director kind of discovered him and was like, hey, I guess, you come be in the movie. Man, Incredible. Yeah. Uh, as far as the entire movie goes, I don't know if I was that impressed Overall, uh, I, I thought the story was good. I enjoyed it. It was well-paced. It, it came in at just around 90 minutes. But I, uh, I was trying to look for why it's recognized as one of the greatest films ever made, and I just wasn't really seeing it. Uh, the cinematography was good. 
Um, like you said, they shot on location the entire thing. All used uh, non-actors. So I mean, the the feat itself was impressive, but just as a, a watching experience, I wasn't that impressed. There were some moving moments to me, especially between uh, the main guy and his son. But uh, yeah, the, the ending was depressing as fuck too. <laughs> yeah, it really was. I, I, I think I liked it a little more than you did. I mean, you're right. It's a very simple story. There isn't actually that much to it. And so at times it did seem a little slow, even though it does come in at a tight 90 minutes. But I, I thought it was just a, a beautiful movie mm-hmm. uh, all around. And and the the story, it's really the story of, of the father and his uh, and his son. Mm-hmm. And I just found that, I mean, it's incredibly sad and, and sometimes depressing, as you say. But it was also just incredibly moving and touching in parts. And so, yeah, I, I quite enjoyed it, probably a little more than you did. Yeah, I think my favorite scene is when they were at the restaurant that was not a pizzeria. The main guy was just like, yeah, let's just get drunk and forget about everything. And the, the kid's like nine, ten years old at the very oldest. And I tend to forget that Europeans are a lot more liberal when it comes to giving their kids alcohol. But, you know, I know like the French and the Italians, they, they drink wine with every meal. But I don't think I've ever seen a kid get drunk like actually drunk so for a dad to just be like ah fuck it <laughs> let's go get wasted and forget all this yeah he's pouring his son like, yeah. full glasses of white wine yeah. that's crazy I thought um, I mean, one of the one of the things that really struck me obviously neorealist it was that that scene at the beginning where they're trying to pawn their bed sheets and then the camera sort of goes behind the the desk and you see just how many people had pawned their sheets for a a little bit of money. Just something little like that just shows it all about how desperate people were in in Europe in in post-World War II and especially a country like like Italy. Um, So just little things like that really, really impressed me. Yeah, yeah. I'd probably enjoy it more on a rewatch. It's just one of those things where it's built up so much that you expect a lot more out of it than you actually get. And I would probably have to go back and look at some more of the subtleties. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I thought it was fine. I did. I don't regret watching it. I don't think it was poor in any respect. I thought it was really, really well made, but I just, I guess I, my expectations were too high. Yeah, I guess I didn't really have those expectations because I would agree it, it's not one of the greatest movies of all time. Uh, but me going in with few expectations, I mean, obviously it shows up on a lot of lists of greatest foreign movies, but I didn't really have that in mind for some reason. And so, so yeah, I just I just thought it was a beautiful film. Yeah. So one one interesting just uh, note about. Uh, this movie, the first poster that he's putting up, of course, is of Rita Hayworth. And one yeah, of those, yeah, I noticed those that famous too. posters of Rita Hayworth. So, I mean, I guess we'll see when we get to our Who Won the Decade section whether or not she merits consideration as the biggest actress of the 40s. But, you know, with this and, and the references and the Shawshank Redemption, it's pretty clear her posters were having a worldwide cultural impact. Mm, good point, yeah. I, I guess the one major problem I had was um, at the end... I mean, I'm all for depressing endings. Don't get me wrong. Like, uh, 
you know, I know the, the world's not all sunshine and rainbows, but what was the message we were supposed to get out of this movie? Yeah, I'm, I'm not quite sure either, actually. Um, mm. You're right, because at the end, yeah, I, I, it almost won, I almost wanted it to go one way or the other. I, I, like, either he steals a bicycle himself mm-hmm. and then gets away with it and he's sort of become part of the problem um, or not. But in the, it, where he tries to steal a bicycle and then it doesn't work and then he gets sort of embarrassed in front of his son. Yeah, I, I wasn't quite sure what we were supposed to take out of that either. Mm. Okay, well, one funny aside is, uh, did you know that Pee-wee's Big Adventure was based off this movie? I had heard that, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Which, yeah, okay. (laughs) I guess it makes sense. Which our our mutual TV teacher, George McGrath, actually worked on, so shout out to George. Exactly, (laughs) yes. Although I will say it's probably unlikely that we get to that movie in our 80s I, 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 section. I just don't think it's going to make the cut. <laughs> so close. All right. So that does it for the 40s. So we're going to start a new segment this time because as we get further and further through time, there are going to be a lot of movies who miss the cut. We can only do 10 just because that's the arbitrary rules we set on ourselves. I mean, we could be doing this podcast for the next five or ten years otherwise. (laughs) So we try to narrow it down to ten. You know, we've given you our criteria for what we think, uh, you know, really exemplified the decade, try to vary it through genre and directors, actors, et cetera, et cetera. So we decided this time to give you five movies each time who almost made it, but who missed the cut. Yeah, and so this is probably going to become a more contentious segment the, the, the further we go along. Exactly. Uh, but for, for this time, one of the movies that missed the cut was His Girl Friday from 1940. So uh, why did it miss the cut? Well... It's a rom-com. It's one of these remarriage rom-coms, also with Cary Grant. So in many ways, it's very similar in style to the Philadelphia story. And frankly, my opinion, Philadelphia story is better. Then up next, we have Pinocchio from 1940. Uh, Walt Disney came out and said that he thought Pinocchio was the greatest movie he's ever made but that Snow White was his greatest achievement just because of all the risk that was involved. And we talked all about that in our 30s podcast. And the animation didn't really... The animation style didn't really change between Snow White and Pinocchio. It just kind of got honed in. So to knock one of these 10 films that we did off the list for Pinocchio seemed kind of uh, useless. And the next one, uh, The Maltese Falcon, which is a big favorite of a lot of people for the 1940s. But look, we already had a a few different noir uh, movies were pretty noir-heavy this decade, for obvious reasons. We also had Humphrey Bogart in in two movies already. We had already had a John Huston movie. So it just seemed a little overkill to to also add The Maltese Falcon. And again, what else could it knock off? So. And then up, we have It's a Wonderful Life in 1946. 
Uh, we already did a Frank Capra and Jimmy Stewart movie when we did Mr. Smith Goes to Washington in the 30s. And, you know, it's a Christmas classic. It's a great movie. But, again, to knock one of the other ten films off the list, to talk about people that we've already spoken about, didn't really fit our style. Yeah, and a movie that everybody's probably already seen a million times anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then the, the final one of our five, Who Missed the Cut, is uh, Hamlet from 1948, uh, Sir Laurence Olivier. Uh, look, it, the play was written in 1599, more or less, 1599 to 1601, somewhere in there. So it's not exactly timely for the 40s. Laurence Olivier was, at that time, sort of the epitome of classical acting, and so that's why we did consider it and considered sort of this great actor, but, and certainly by the time we get into the 50s, but already things had started to change a little bit in terms of acting style. So his acting style was a little bit on on its way out. Um, so even though at the time he was sort of seen as the epitome of, of acting greatness, it's probably not enough to warrant the inclusion of, of the movie itself. So that leads us into our award-winning... Well, okay, hasn't really won any, won any awards yet, but uh, it, it, it's award- won the awards of our hearts. <laughs> exactly, we can we will give the award to ourselves. Our award-winning segment of either or, either or. So here we go, either or, Zach, best or better chaplain, talky chaplain or silent chaplain. It's got to be talky for me. Uh, we, I already said that The Great Dictator might wind up, at the end of the day, being one of my favorite films of all time. Uh, you know, Silent Chaplin is the one that everybody knows. The kid persona will live on forever, as long as there are movies. But the fact that he was able to utilize the physical comedy that he did with the kid persona, as well as add another... The, the s- tramp persona from the kid, you mean? Oh, yes, the tramp from the kid. Yes, thank thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, But for him to be able to add the layers, several layers that he did with The Great Dictator really showed the true depth of his talent. So for me, it's talky. See, I I was all set to agree with you uh, on this and and go with talky as well, but I I actually think I'm going to go the other way and say Silent Chaplin just because... um, Talkie Chaplin was a revelation for me, but I don't know why the hell he didn't get to it sooner. Mm. Like I, I didn't realize that he that he could could be that good in terms of his dialogue and and all that kind of stuff. And so it just left me wanting more. And if he had done it earlier and we had more to work with, now obviously he did have more talkie films after this. Um, all of them, almost all of them, made outside of the U.S. after he got kicked out of the country. But it just, it wasn't really enough. And so I think just based upon uh, pure output, I'm going to have to go with Silent uh, Chaplin because I think he was just too late to the talkie game. All right. Better bogey, Casablanca or Treasure of the Sierra Madre? Uh, well, okay, for, for me, this one's pretty obvious because I've already expressed how much I disliked his character in, <laughs> in Sierra Madre. So th- this one's definitely Casablanca for me. I mean, not only just in terms of likability, but I thought it was a more nuanced character as well. Um, again, it's sort of, as you pointed out, morally ambiguous. You never really were quite sure where, which way he was going to go. Uh, infinitely more charming. And whereas the Sierra Madre character was just... 
it was great acting, but it was it was pretty one note miserable the whole time. Yeah, he was a total scumbag in Sierra Madres. So while I respect that he's going down that darker path in the latter years of his career, I got to go with Casablanca because it's not like he's playing this morally upstanding good guy. He is that kind of antihero that has come to be what we really love about TV and movies over the past 20 years or so. So it was way ahead of his time. And I mean, when you think of when you think of Humphrey Bogart, Casablanca is the, the first thing that comes to my mind. So that's that's the answer for me. Yeah. Okay, next one. Either or. Better example of film noir. Either Double Indemnity or The Third Man. Uh, it's got to be Double Indemnity for me here, just because almost all of the tropes are there. The, the you know, the fast-paced dialogue, the femme fatale, the... The <laughs> I just love Fred McMurray's every time he speak every time he opens his mouth I just crack a smile just <laughs> just because it's so over the top. The third man's a lot more subtle about what they do, but as a just if you're gonna show students of film an example of film noir, you got to go with Double Indemnity. Yeah, I'm gonna have to agree on this one. I mean, even down to the. The uh, light shining through Venetian blinds right. thing—that's I mean, that's just such a common trope now, and that started in Double Indemnity and just so many other of those tropes. The Third Man was uh, had a lot of the same things, but maybe I'm penalizing it because it was five years after uh, Double Indemnity. But uh, yeah, it's got to be Di for me. Mm. So, better love triangle, Philadelphia story or Casablanca? And we already said that the Philadelphia story is kind of a love quadrangle, but the fiancé is just kind of a plot device, so we're going to throw him out because he sucks. Yeah, he does, but I will add that the that it is still sort of a quadrangle because the fourth person in the in the love story is actually the photographer who oh. in the end who who in the end Jimmy Stewart's character ends up with. So, so is there so, such thing as a quintangle? So yeah, it kind of is almost a quintangle, <laughs> and and the dud gets thrown out to the Catherine Hepburn's character was about to was about to marry. Um, so I mean, despite my uh, yeah, this, this, I'm gonna have to go with Casablanca just because if it's more of a pure uh, love triangle, mm. and just the way that they found to resolve it was was so great that uh, two of them end up together, but the other one really sort of finds his his moral center because of it. Uh, I, I just think the resolution tips the balance a little bit to Casablanca, as much as I love the, the love stories in Philadelphia Story. Yeah, this is, uh, this is really, really tough. Uh, oh, Casablanca is one of my favorite movies, as I mentioned, but I'm going to have to go with Philadelphia Story on this one just because of the chemistry between the three people involved in that love triangle like Casablanca you know it's all about Bogey and Ingrid Bergman and the other guys just kind of thrown in the mix but Philadelphia Story all three players are constantly involved like every other scene has one two or three of the main characters that uh, are involved in this love triangle and yeah, just the chemistry between the actors, I thought, was actually better than Casablanca, which is uh, surprising for myself to hear these words come out of my mouth. 
I, I will actually agree on that point. You're right. The chemistry between the actors was unparalleled in Philadelphia Story. All right, final one. Either or. More bleak view of human nature. Either Double Indemnity or Treasure of the Sierra Madre. See, this is interesting because both of these movies have similar themes in that they're, they both involve murder for money and, uh, you know, uh, money is the root of all evil and greed will consume the human soul. I think it's, uh, I think it's treasure of the Sierra Madre just because, uh, like we, I mean, we've talked about it several times already, how unlikable Humphrey Bogart's character is and that it's really just all about greed. There's no real, um, subtext to it. And double indemnity the same way, but at least there's, you know, you can, I don't want to say you can identify with Fred McMurray's character, but you can, you know, we've all seen a woman and just like, oh my God, I'll do anything for her. (laughs) Like we've all been in that stage at some point in our youth. And, uh, so I think Trevor Sierra Madre has the most, uh, like straightforward. This is what this movie's about. And it's about a bleak view of human nature. Yeah, I, I, I kind of have to agree, actually, on this one. And mostly because um, at least Double Indemnity has a few characters who are you know, somewhat upright and follow right, the rules. Right, yeah. Treasure of the Sierra Madre, even the two characters who are meant to be kind of its moral center, one, the, the old prospector, uh, Walter Houston character, and the other guy of, of the trio that who's sort of the good guy, even them, I mean, at one point in the movie, even they're ready to kill, to just straight up murder this other American who stumbles upon their, um, who follow those, follows them back to their camp. Mm-hmm. And if it, and if it weren't for the for the bandits arriving, and then so they all have to get together, and they they just would have straight up murdered this guy too. And those those guys are supposed to be the the moral center of the film. So really, there's there's no. Uh, there's no redeeming characters in this movie for the most part, even though they make an attempt to redeem them at the end. So, yeah, it's got to be Treasure of the Sierra Madre. It's just a bleak, bleak outlook of human nature. Yeah, it's all about the golden rule. Whoever has the gold makes the rules. Makes the rules, yeah. So on to one of our recurring segments for this Century series. Who won the decade? Director, who won the decade, Martin? This was actually a tough, uh, a tough category for me. Not that, not because there were so many directors to choose from, because I didn't actually find that very many directors really stood out above the others in, the, in mm-hmm. this de- in this decade. Um, so for me, it basically came down to three guys: uh, John Ford, who directed *Grapes of Wrath* that we had uh, looked at earlier; uh, John Huston, who directed *Treasure of the Sierra Madre*. And another guy who was who was very prominent in the in the 40s, and that was William Wyler. Mm. And so, in the end, though, I went with John Ford. Mm. He um, not only did he direct *Grapes of Wrath*, but he, he won two Oscars for directing. And even though in the middle of the decade, uh, basically during the entire time of World War II, all he was doing was was directing. Uh, uh, propaganda films for the American government, right. including including one on sex hygiene for the troops. <laughs> um, so you can basically cut out almost five or five years of of that decade where he wasn't really making Hollywood films. I still think he he won the decade. I'm going with John Huston. 
because he did Maltese Falcon and Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which are two of the greatest movies of all time. And, you know, he was also involved in the war, but he was actually, you know, out there on the front lines, and he was like the the rugged man's man, and that's why he always loved, especially after uh, after he got out of the war, he always loved to shoot on location, and that's, he was like the, uh, he was like Francis Ford Coppola before his time, he just liked to take people and push them to their limits, and yeah, his relationship with Humphrey Bogart really catapulted both of their careers. All right, so um, that leads into possibly a very neat segue into the actor that won the decade. One word, bogey. Yeah, yeah, this, this is one of the, the clearest ones for me, too. It's, it's got to be Humphrey Bogart. I mean, Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart were sort of distant runners-up, but... And even yeah, Orson Welles you can make a case for. Yeah, yeah, but in terms of an actor, yeah, there's nobody who dominated the 40s like bogey. Yeah, this yeah this was his decade, hands down. This will this will definitely be a little tougher as we go into who won the decade actress. Yeah, this is a tough choice because I think it's it's an interesting question whether or not we're talking about just acting, in which case my two candidates are Betty Davis, mm. um, who had five Oscar nominations and was just uh, in a ton of movies, and Olivia de Havilland. Who mm. had four Oscar nominations and won twice, and she's and, still alive. And she's still alive. <laughs> our, our girl Olivia still kicking it. Um, and uh, you know, obviously, we'd seen her in a few things at the end of the '30s. So those, if we're talking just acting, then those two are my two lead candidates. If we're talking broader cultural appeal, uh, acting, and and also just impact on on the world in general, then you also have to throw in Betty Grable and Rita Hayworth. Mm. who were just iconic and ubiquitous in terms of their images being everywhere around the world, and they starred in a bunch of movies. Uh, not necessarily Oscar fair for, for both of them, but um, and certainly in the case of Betty Grable, very successful movie. She was one of the box office leaders of the, I think for nine of the 10 years of the 40s, she was in the top 10 in terms of box office, uh, uh, top box office attractions. Um, in the end, I'm going to give it to Betty Davis. Okay. Um, That's just, fair. Just because um, it, she just, she's just got one of these names and just this presence around her. And when you think of the 40s, and even though she did win Oscars, um, but not in, not in the 40s, she was nominated five times in that decade for, for Best Actress. And she was just such a presence in the time. So I'm, I'm going to have to give it to her. But, but yeah, this, this is a tough category. Yeah, I struggled with this one for a while, but I'm actually going to go with Ingrid Bergman. Oh, okay. So not even one of the four. Okay. Yeah. She did 16 movies in the 40s alone, all of which she was either second or third billed in, obviously including Casablanca. She did Notorious with Alfred Hitchcock, and she played Joan of Arc. And I just thought it was a very uh, unique achievement for an actress with a foreign accent to break in the, the way that she did because, I mean, America was still so xenophobic at the time, and... You know, uh, a pretty face goes a long way, but she actually had the acting chops to catapult her 
into the upper echelon of greatest actresses of all time. And the way she did it, she, she didn't take any shit. She wound up becoming a writer and director in the fifties as well. So her talent is unquestionable. And yeah, that's uh, Ingrid Bergman for me. Yeah, that's a good choice. Yeah, this, this was a tough loaded category. Yeah. All right. Th- this next one is probably going to be fairly easy. I would assume which genre won the decade? Noir. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty easy. It really is when you think about film noir. It's all about the 40s. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, yeah. Yeah, we had Double Indemnity, The Third Man, The Maltese Falcon, which didn't even make the cut for us, even though it's a fantastic movie, and I would urge anybody to go watch that one as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, this was the decade for noir, and it's it's uh, it's been the influence for every neo noir that has come since, and people are still making neo noir movies. So there's a reason why noir was so popular then and so nostalgic now. Then, who won the decade genre? Oh wait, no, sorry, studio. The last one. Uh, studio. Okay, so we're, we still have a lot of the, the big original players around, um, but for this one, I'm actually going to give it to Warner Brothers. Mm. I think this is where Warner Brothers really came into their own in the 40s. I mean, obviously, MGM and RKO were still still a pretty big deal at the time, but, uh, you know, Warner Brothers, we have we have Casablanca, we have, um, which other ones was, was on our list? Um, uh Huh. Anyway, there were there were um, there were a bunch beyond Casablanca. I'm looking at our list here. I know which one was it. Philadelphia they did, uh, Story was that also? Yeah, that was a one. No, no, uh, Philadelphia Story was an MGM joint. Right. Oh, Treasure was here. Madre was right. also uh, Warner Brothers. Um, so yeah, it was. They were Jack Warner. I mean, much like in the 30s when Louis B. Mayer was king. Um, Louis B. Mayer was still a pretty big deal in the in the 40s, but Jack Warner was really becoming the man about town. And so I, for me, it's got to be Warner Brothers. All right, I'm going to go with RKO. Um, not only for their producing, but for their credits as distributors, because they distributed Fantasia, Pinocchio, Dumbo, and Bambi. And they produced Citizen Kane, Pride of the Yankees, Dick Tracy, Notorious, The Best Years of Our Lives, and It's a Wonderful Life, just to name a select few. And to have that kind of resume is uh, really, really impressive. Uh, and, uh, you know, RKO had kind of a really swift downfall after this decade. But for them to really uh they had a great 20-year run between the 30s and 40s and Howard Hughes kind of came in and ran him into the ground unfortunately but it was like the it was a studio that really could have been one of the top five or six today if it had kept on that pace yeah, I felt like you. Uh, I feel like you kind of won the argument here, mostly because I forgot to write down all of the all of the great movies that Warner Brothers uh, <laughs> came up with uh, in the '40s. But uh, I'm still gonna stick with um, stick with Warner Brothers as my uh, as my list. All right, cool. So that's the end of our 
two-part 40s podcast, and then we're moving on to the 1950s. The Cold War is on the rise. The Red Scare will decimate the Hollywood population. And what are we going to talk about then, Martin? Okay, so we've got another great 10 movies lined up. We are going to start with 1950s Sunset Boulevard, then move on to 52, Singing in the Rain, 53, Shame, which will basically be the first sort of true Western that we, we're, we're going to look at, even though um, you could make a case for something like Treasure of the Sierra Madre being kind of a Western. Mm. Um, 1954, Seven Samurai, so again, going with the foreign film. 1954 as well, On the Waterfront, our first look at Brando. 1955, Rebel Without a Cause. 1957, 12 Angry Men. 1958, Vertigo. And, and uh, that will be our first Hitchcock, I believe, that we're going to be looking at. Mm-hmm. 1959, Some Like It Hot. And also 1959, Ben-Hur. So quite the range of genres and different types of movies, and yeah, that should be a that should be a really fun list to go through. All right, we got everything from s- s- musicals to noir to westerns, slapstick comedy, and an, uh, a true biblical epic. So we are very happy that you've stuck with us for this amount of time. We really enjoy doing this podcast, so please listen and download. And we hope to see you next time on the Unsolicited Film Reviews podcast. We can You can find us at unsolicitedfilmreviews.com. You can look us up on Facebook at Unsolicited Film Reviews. You can follow us on Instagram at unsolicited underscore film underscore reviews. And you can follow me personally at Zach T. Miller on Instagram. You can follow me on Instagram at jmartincook, cook with an E. And then we will see you in the 1950s on the Unsolicited Film Reviews Podcast Century Series. You've been listening to the Unsolicited Film Reviews Podcast, hosted by Zach Miller and Martin Cook, with original music by Martin Cook and original artwork by Dan Ong. Sponsored by No One. See you next time.